Hey, I'm Jim McGinnis, and this is Stories We Can Tell. At its heart, reflections on history, literature, and music. Stories about individual journeys and struggles and victories. It's about Americans, America, or as much as I have seen. I've been teaching and coaching down here in my hometown of Melbourne, Florida, for the past 35 years. And three years ago, I wrote a book called Tending to the Past. Imagine that, Reflections of an American History Teacher. Since then, I've published a collection of poetry called Point South, mostly about my love for Florida. Surely a verse or two will slip in from time to time. Many years ago, a friend of mine gave me two cherished gifts, a book of Frost poetry and a John Prine record. Thanks, Ferg, wherever the twain shall meet. From there to Carl Sandburg and Hemingway to Jim Harrison, Jim Lepper, and old Jimmy Buffett, my gumbo of influences may help explain what you hear. So thanks goes out to all the links in the chain. Miles to go. Miles to go. Journal entry, January 10. Weather 69 degrees, rain, winds calm. There are remnants of a weak cold front sitting right on top of central Florida. It had come through a few days ago, but then it backed up and stopped. I sat on the hearth tonight reading while my granddaughter played with toys on the coffee table. It was raining steady, 70 degrees, but there was still a fire in the fireplace. We Floridians will not be cheated out of our seasonal rituals. I had every intention of cleaning out a box of papers I found in my closet today, but there amongst the notes and receipts, I happened upon an old essay Jim Harrison had written on the environment. I distinctly remember pirating the article from a magazine in my doctor's office. Now, there's no shame in liberating a good piece of journalism. The coincidence of finding the article, though, was eerie. I'd just been thinking about Harrison and the day I found out that the writer was gone. In the midst of a riveting conversation with a 90-year-old woman about our favorite books, I mentioned Harrison's name. She put her hand on mine and said, I'm sorry we lost him. He still had work to do. I stared at her, dumbfounded, shocked by the news that had somehow escaped me. When I got home that day, I found a eulogy online written by the writer's friend, Tom McGuane. Harrison had died mid-sentence. The connection between us was an unlikely one. How is it that this under-read Floridian discovered the rough voice of a writer from the wilds of Michigan's Upper Peninsula? Actually, I first stumbled upon Harrison's stories and poems in a collection of Key West literature of all places. From that point on, I've been consuming and digesting as much as the writer's work as I can. I began reading with a notebook handy so I could jot down phrases and images that struck me. Harrison himself had scoffed at any comparison with Hemingway, but the two shared an uncanny ability to bring their lust for life into their stories. I cut my teeth now on Hemingway, Sandberg, Twain, of course Frost, but it was Harrison's whose writing got to me.
He had taken me on long walks. The writer had never expressed a particular fondness for teaching, but I found valuable lessons just the same. Jim Harrison's words somehow brought me closer to the American idea. You could probably chuckle at that. The creed, the belief in the worth and dignity of each person and that person's right to pursue his or her own definition of happiness and purpose, that idea is to be embraced not only on sunny days, but on dark ones, not just in good times, but also in bad. But the writer had done something else to me. His later writings had opened this teacher's eyes to parts of American history that are difficult to know, but that wasn't enough. I felt the need to stare malevolence in the eye, as Jordan Peterson said. I guess the whole purpose of tending to the past is to offset all the tragedy and evil in the world. I remember Harrison saying that the last thing anyone with a conscience wants to ponder is our treatment of Native Americans. I know very little about the 500 tribes now, and I've taught even less. Regardless of my noble intentions to know this country's story, I fall into that massive group of Americans who turn their faces from the sins of the ancestors. I've been quick to point my finger at the crimes of the Nazis, told of the endless suffering of African Americans born on free in a free country. And of course, I've spoken of the persecution of my Irish forefathers. But the story of America's own Holocaust is told only in passing, part of a broad chapter on America's move west. I've spoken to my students countless times about how we're all refugees at one time or another, all strangers in a foreign land. But I've said relatively little of the natives whose land was taken, whose population was reduced from 10 million to 300,000 in a span of a few hundred years. My granddaughter brought me a book on dolphins, insisting that we read it immediately, and I dropped everything to do so. Five minutes with her is bliss. I wondered if Harrison experienced grandchildren. Hope so. Just when you have abandoned all hope for the future, a little girl crawls up on your lap with a book. Still, I'm strangely annoyed at Harrison for all this. Why in the hell do I feel so defensive? Uh, yeah, I've left things out. I've told less than the whole story. Truth is a funny thing, you know. Should I tell none of it if I can't tell all of it? I'm uneasy shouldering the guilt of repressing the dark things in our past. I salve my conscience by realizing the limitations of time and energy. I've constantly harped upon the need to embrace the culture of history, the understanding that there's always more to the story. Each and every year, I learn something new to share with my students. But ironically, I'm the one who rages about leaving things out of the curriculum and I've defiantly left things in, broadening the scope of a sophomore history class on my own. But this teacher still bears the burden of picking and choosing what did make it into the lecture. So of course, 
Mr. Harrison has a point. I read again of the dark claim that the crimes against Native Americans walk hand in hand with the plundering of our natural environment. I don't know about that, but the tattered essay was also my first encounter with Harrison's line about having to squint to see love among the ruins. Something out of Robert Browning, maybe? It was a phrase that reflected a necessary optimism, a choice to believe in things. A necessary optimism, a choice to believe in things. I've used it often in my teachings of America. Oh, America. And as I watched that little girl playing, I again started thinking about this place in all its tangled complexities, its power, its generosity, recklessness, its incoherence and spontaneity. And to borrow from the poet, the laughter all mixed up the serious stuff, the conquests, betrayals, and incredible achievements. Through all of it though, trying to comprehend the gift we've given the world, The events of the past few years in our republic have only strengthened my belief that our problems are still rooted in this disconnect between the ideal and the real, the creed and the realities of American life. I'm mindful that the cost of remembering can be equal to the cost of locking away and forgetting. Still, there's more to do. If we are even thinking about moving closer to the creed, there are more stories to tell. More truth needs to be told, no matter how painful, of hundreds of broken treaties, of the massacres at Wounded Knee and Sand Creek, of the Navajo and Lakota children living in abject poverty here in America in the 21st century. to our creed, to our humanity. It's especially painful, so painful that we often choose to forget that which we harmed or destroyed. Again, I could hear Harrison in that ragged voice speaking with poetic rhythm. Apache, Arapaho, Pawnee, Blackfoot, Lakota, Sioux, Omaha, Cheyenne, Chippewa, Mandan, all among the poorest people in the Western Hemisphere. His words rattled around my brain until they finally came rushing out of my mouth. I'm swept away by the beauty of accumulated names and images, and also the sorrow of our implacable cruelty. What about the Native Americans? Another student once asked me. We're always helping everybody all over the world. Why aren't we more generous to them? This was their land. Why can't we help? I paused and thought about what to say. True history, I said under my breath. Harrison said that being fair to the Indians would be like an admission of guilt. I'm not so sure we have the guts to do that. My student appeared unhappy with my response. 
But this is why, folks, we have to avoid censoring parts of history that make us feel uncomfortable. We need to tell more of the story, not less of it. A Harrison interview in which he said, in a properly lived life, you're a river. You touch things lightly or deeply. You move along because life itself moves on and you cannot stop it. Well, when I read that, it bothered me only because it was true. And uh, I picked up my pen for the first time in a very long while. And I wrote down a Robert Frost line, the stream of everything that runs away. A friend asked me once about my obsession, her word, with Frost. I laughed and said I didn't know. But I did know it was that one particular poem, West Running Brook. And after reading Harrison's words, it fell back upon me. It flows between us, over us, and with us. And it is time, strength, tone, light, life, and love. The current, though, threatens to wash away everything. But then there is that wave against the stream that Frost speaks of. The wave against the stream. It made me think of Bob Dylan and how he took great pains in his youth to learn every Woody Guthrie song, rescuing them from the flow that would carry them away. How Paul Simon dug for the roots of rhythm. How Jimmy Buffett followed his song lines all over the world. <coughs> in each of them, in each of us, there is a need for tending to the past, a resistance, not just a swerving, but a throwing back toward our beginnings. Of course, the mystery of America, a forward-looking spirit, is in fact a rejection of that current, a challenge to, to, to traditions, a wave against the flow of history. The American idea was instead an appeal to human nature. But again, we are faced with the truth about the river, and it threatens to wash away all things. So we gotta move backward toward the source. It is this backward motion toward the source against the stream that most we see ourselves. My granddaughter again climbed up on my lap and interrupted these deep, deep thoughts with a story spoken in a language all her own. The joy she brought tempered my concerns, but she was gone as quickly as she came, preferring to follow the dogs around. What's the purpose of the telling and the showing? Absolution. That's for each of us to answer. But the first step always in self-improvement is self-criticism. And that requires the truth. The whole truth, or as much as we can muster. By gazing into the abyss, by staring down the adversity, the tragedy, the evil in the world, Peterson said, if you can face it, it can strengthen you so you can endure the other bad stuff. Peterson believed that taking on responsibility was an antidote for the meaningless created by the malevolence of the world. And responsibility 
gives meaning and purpose to our lives. And that can offset the catastrophes and disasters in the world. Whether it makes it into the curriculum or not, the students hopefully leave with the notion that there's still so much to know, still so much to be done. So, as I sat listening to the rain hit the roof, I try in vain to get out of my own head. I feel the weight of things I've failed to learn and have neglected to teach. And what about all that I have taught? When once I felt that democracy was on the rise, I'm not so sure anymore. For many of us, the anger, fear, and frustration pull us away from the angels of our nature. Voices of reason fall on deaf ears. The present political climate is so damn toxic that I can barely stand to have a conversation with friends and colleagues, something that I've always treasured. Instead, I long to be floating offshore in my boat or walking up a mountain trail, just wanting to escape the discourse that is spewing venom and empty lives. But I can't do that. It is, of course, my responsibility as an American history teacher to keep telling the story for as much as I know. And it's my duty as a citizen to keep speaking up and speaking out. So here I sit, tending to a fire, a little worn down by what Old Harrison called the fraudulence of my own hard work. I've been thinking about maybe it's time to walk out of the classroom. I know some people get tired of hearing that. Just quit already, eh? For years I've scripted my own departure when I'm effective, ineffective I should say, when I'm not good, when I'm not being heard, I'm walking. We know that is much harder done than said. And even as teachers are being steadily bombarded with mechanization and standardization, <clears throat> I know that teaching is an art and not a science. Try as they may, they can never take away the human element. Bruce Chatwin called it a core of unmodifiable instinct in each of us forcing the brainwashers and candle snuffers to start their work over and over again. I think of that line each day when I back the truck out of the driveway and head on over to that cramped little classroom. Each time I feel the joy of encountering a group of young, unstoried, unknowing, but incredibly open minds. Maybe I'll stay one more year. From my bookshelf, I pulled through Lakota eyes from its place. <coughs> I thumbed through the pages of the unread book. Maybe I'll teach a new lesson one of these days. Maybe I'll get it right. really coming down for some reason and my granddaughter started to cry. I picked her up and whisked her across the room. Mom's coming soon, I whispered. You don't want to be crying when she gets here. 
big tears filled her eyes as I turned on the stereo, found that one particular cut off of Bob Dylan's self-portrait album, an acoustic version of Wigwam. I waltzed her around the living room as Dylan la-la'd his way through a simple, soothing tune. Here's one of the great songwriters of his generation, his or anyone's for that matter, singing a song with no words. Ha. I danced slowly and sang softly, and soon she calmed. Bob's lullaby did the trick. <laughs> 